are at peak hysteria over the coronavirus outbreak in China, with equity and commodity markets reacting to fears it could impact economic growth in the world's second largest economy. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. China sealed off millions of people in Wuhan, the center of a virus outbreak. It's an unprecedented quarantine effort. At the moment, the death toll is around 106, according to Chinese authorities, the number of confirmed cases in the thousands. And we're hearing reports of um, cases outside of China as well in a number of countries. So the Chinese authorities have canceled some of their New Year celebrations. They're trying to make sure that the disease doesn't spread any further. But markets in general have responded with a risk-off stance. Kelsey Warner, future editor, is with me. How are you, Kelsey? Hi, Mustafa. Good to see you. Good to be here. And also Phil Bahoshi, chief executive of online community for startups Magnet. You're with us, Phil. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, we, a little bit later on, Phil, we'll talk about Magnet itself and you know some of the issues around the tech startup scene, some of the exciting developments. Um, but first, um, Kelsey, you were um, reporting last week on the response to the coronavirus outbreak in China. I actually really enjoyed your piece. You can see on national.ae because it was talking about a lot of the learnings um, from the past, particularly SARS in China. Um, and and this is a direct relevance to kind of the, the hysteria at the moment, the real fear. Um, and I'm talking about outside of China where there isn't this sort of scale of the outbreak where a lot of people are worried. And, and we'll talk a bit about markets, but maybe you can kind of give me a rundown of what what you were writing about. Sure. So, I mean, I took sort of a, what have we learned from the past two decades with starting from SARS in 2002 to Ebola from 2014 to 2016. How have we kind of improved our response times? And what I found was fairly heartening in terms of what the UN's World Health Organization has put forward for rapid testing of vaccines and just kind of capturing this innovation model so that cures get to patients faster. And also just understanding that in the last two decades, the amount of communication technology that we've developed has just, you know, the exponential growth. Back in 2002, you know, we were all getting our first Blackberries and not even iPhones, just our first kind of smartphones. So the capacity for information to travel faster than a disease at this point is, um, you know, vastly improved. And then the other thing I've been working on this week is uh, understanding this company out of Toronto called Blue Dot, which is an artificial intelligence company that on December 31st, more than a week before the World Health Organization publicly addressed it, had emailed clients saying, we're seeing a coronavirus out of a, a potentially an animal market in China. This looks a lot like SARS. Um, so, yeah, really interesting, uh, I think heartening vote of confidence from technology and innovation here in 2020. So I would say markets don't necessarily share your confidence this at this <laughs> moment while we're recording. Sorry, no. Uh, Brent crude prices are off about $7. Um, OPEC's not worried. I mean, OPEC are, are pretty confident that they can manage any sort of issues with, with a, you know, a short-term drop in demand. They're already keeping about 1.7 million barrels per day of extra crude off the market, part of the agreement of the wider OPEC alliance. Um, but that, in, in general, there is a, a worry of what um, this outbreak and the actions of, of Chinese authorities could do to economic growth in China, which was going to be about 6% this year as it was. There's estimates anywhere between half a percent to 1.2% impact on economic growth. Certainly, it's going to impact the first quarter. 
Um, SARS was was had a high impact, but for a short period of time. And if we kind of use that as a benchmark, we'll say at least for sentiment, it's going to put people off for a few months until things settle down. Um, it's a bit of a shame, really, because we had some euphoria following the phase one trade deal between the US and China. Um, that's gone completely now. Um, and everyone's worried about the knock-on effect on aviation and tourism. You know, they're stopping flights out of China. People aren't traveling. Um, you know, Hong Kong said that they would halve the number of flights in and out of China. Of course, Hong Kong have their own issues for the last year. When I was in Davos last week, the IMF put out their global economic outlook. They said, we avoided a recession in 2019. 2020, we have growth, but growth is not certain. You know, we have to do all the right things. And if there's any issues, there has to be a collaborative response from governments and central banks for and, fiscal And this is stimulation. certainly an issue. Yeah, but at the same time, um, the managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, is a real character. She talked about kind of everybody accepting there's a certain uncertainty now. It's priced in. We're a lot more resilient than we have been in, in previous years. So I think a month from now, we might be surprised this will where, be where flash, crude markets are, where equity markets are. Not so much a flash in the pan, but just how quickly we get used to the fact that we can, we can actually deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, I'll bring you in. You're not a journalist sitting with us. Um, you're, you. a, you're a chief executive, <laughs> you're a founder of your own business, but you talk to a lot of businesses, but also you travel a lot. Yep. So, I mean, on a sort of business level, has the virus um, story given you pause in terms of your next business trip? I think it definitely brings into question uh, the ability to travel and where to travel um, out of fear. I think an interesting point is how quick the media can build up these stories and how scaremongering. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You, you're more informed, but the truth of the matter is very hard to to, to work out where, where the truth actually sits. Uh, it hasn't affected us until it hits you home, in my opinion. So if we started hearing about things here in the region, um, then yes, you definitely would begin to get a bit more panicked with traveling. Um, but yeah, it's it's difficult to work out what the truth is versus what is just hysteria on social media or, or the news. And, and I think that's the biggest challenge, as well as the fact it could quickly not become a news story and a new new issue um, comes about and you begin to forget it. Yeah, we've had a busy January Very already busy in the January. region. But I mean, ask, is it, again, running a business, how, how much does the news impact your day-to-day decision? I'm assuming you're looking forward, you're looking at 2020, you're looking at the region. It, it's got to take something, you know, pretty sustained to put you off whatever your, your plans are and whatever your targets are. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm a tech startup and, and we're, we're still growing as a company. We're not a, a massive conglomerate. So uh, I, I know friends of mine that, for instance, um, had travel restrictions put on them out of caution uh, and et cetera when they're large banks or pri- uh, big institutions. For us, it's more what's actually happening next week. And I think that's that short-termist uh, approach that while you have a strategy for a year, it's literally how are we going to get the revenue next week? What are the growth numbers for next week? Is this going to affect us in the immediate term? If not, then let's ignore it until it becomes something that becomes a a bigger issue. Is it going to affect your staff? Is it going to affect your clients? Is it going to affect transactions or business? Uh, And it is a short-termist view, but it's immediately, does this impact me? Otherwise, I'll keep abreast of the information in the news until it becomes a real issue. And that can be applied to many of the news stories that we hear. It's not just this one. Uh, Well, let's move on to something a little bit more positive and, and certainly closer to home. Well, let, less, less something to be worried about anyway in terms of our health and our fears. Um, Sharjah said it discovered a new um, natural gas find uh, onshore in the Emirate, which is the first onshore find uh, in more than three decades. It did this with the Italian company Eni. The expectation is a really big boost for the local economy, which is um, you know pretty exciting for Sharjah. It's a 
kind of diversification of energy in terms of it's a slightly cleaner energy than an oil discovery. So, right, an exciting, big, major kind of historic breakthrough for Sharjah. It's important for Sharjah's industry because power supply, access to power is important. Um, We've been reporting a lot in the National about um, gas fines, both conventional and unconventional, onshore and offshore in Abu Dhabi. In particular, also in Egypt, um, the Mediterranean is becoming a big area for gas uh, discovery and exploration. But charges charges in the game. They're on is, the map. Yeah, and we had Bahrain as well recently um, uh, with uh, non-conventional finds, Saudi Arabia. So, you know, in terms of if we talk about sustainability factors, environmental factors, um, okay, oil and gas exploration comes with it certain environmental risks, but if they're managed properly, then ultimately the a source of, of natural gas is much cleaner than otherwise if you're burning oil or coal or whatever it might be. Sure. So it's a good look at the right time. I think so. I think so. <laughs> um, so Phil, uh, you know, as I said earlier, you're chief executive of Magnet. So tell us a little bit, what is Magnet? So we call ourselves the the reference or MENA's most powerful startup platform. Um, it's built on three specific pillars. A community platform that allows people to engage the region has basically had a very disconnected to date um, ecosystem with regards to infrastructure. And what we're trying to provide is that platform that overarches not just one country, but the whole of the region. And that allows users of the platform when they create a profile to apply for funding. Uh, it's the only dedicated job board for startups and talent is a major issue. And then from that, we basically built a pillar of data. We have a very comprehensive set of high tech growth uh, institutions and companies, including startups, corporates, investors across the whole of the region. And that can be used as a tool to identify potential investments or um, business development opportunities. And the final one is that really the data is only as useful as the analysis around that. And we've built a research practice, which has become the reference for many journalists and publications around the startup ecosystem. And right now across the whole of the region, innovation, startups uh, are high on top of many of the agendas of governments and then corporates. And we're trying to support with transparency and information to help in that space. So I kind of want to dig into this idea of information and you as a data platform, because I think Magnet publishes the annual big VC, sort of state of VC in the MENA region report. So where does your data come from and how do you kind of clean it and make sure that it's a valuable resource to actually draw insight from? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we have three mechanisms by which we do that. Number one, we've now reached out to over 250 different investors who've made investments in MENA-based companies. That could be accelerator programs, private equity, VC, angel groups um, on a quarterly basis. And we go to them and ask them to report to us the investments that they've been making. And so it basically comes from the source. The second one is, as a community platform, startups come and update their profiles in a very similar way as you would on LinkedIn if you're recruiting or for professional reasons. They do so on the platform and can apply to different institutions and give information about their funding. We then go and validate that either with the investor or through third-party sources. And then, of course, we're continually, and the community team at Magnet are continually sourcing any announcements that we may not have been aware of and then validating that with the startups to make sure that um, becomes a part of the reporting and the platform itself. So it's, it's the data on the platform that then becomes part of the research report that we bring out on a quarterly basis. It's interesting because I think a community like yours, a platform, uh, grows hand-in-hand hand with you know, the wider industry it's reflecting. Yeah. Do you see trends before they're emerging or are you very much, 
you know, are you be able to predict it or you're following it as, as they happen? Today, we've been following it as it happens. It's uh, We haven't put in the AI technology to see changes. And to be honest, there's a lag in investment announcements and changes because people usually tend to announce a couple of months after they've actually uh, made an investment. And that's something that we would like to work on moving forwards. Now we're in the phase of, if you can imagine that there is a lack of transparency in data, it's just aggregating this data. What has become quite interesting is I'm in a very fortunate position um, with Magnet to have conversations with government entities, corporates, investors, and entrepreneurs alike. And I've picked up a lot of this information myself, uh, not necessarily through the platform, but to really try and understand the sentiment and the trends, listening to the investors and the government officials on their goals. That that's where the forward-looking things come. So it's yeah. more through on, uh, offline conversations. But the data allows me to then quantify that and, and actually distill. So on an annual basis, yes. So I always try to give my overview of the ecosystem on an annualized basis, which gives you 12 months worth of data to do that analysis. But in a forward-looking one, it's predictions based on conversations and the trends that you're seeing on the ground. I mean, an interesting thing that you Magnet came up with for 2019, looking back, was that money was moving away from e-commerce and into fintech, yeah. which indicated to me a maturing of the tech ecosystem here. E-commerce is sort of a slightly less technical, in some cases, way less technical yeah. um, than a fintech type startup. But what did it say to you? Well, I mean, yes and no. So I believe that in any emerging ecosystem and country, um, when you speak to a, a venture capitalist, if you speak to an investor, what they'll say is that at the early stages, you're looking for a large market that can be disrupted with a solution of a problem using technology. Um, a founding team that understands the problem are able to uh, apply that and that there's scalable growth to that solution. So, I mean, at its very simplest form, that's what an investor of a tech company would look for. When you look at infrastructure, it's ripe for disruption, especially here in the region. Um, there has not been mapping for quite a long time now that's come into place. E-commerce companies, in my opinion, are actually logistics companies. While they give you SKUs and choice of products, effectively what makes Souk what it was before it was acquired was it got it to your home as opposed to you picking it up from a PO box or from a, a delivery um, a post office. And, and so it's not, and even the Kareems of this world and now truckers and the swivels are really solving point to point delivery as an infrastructure play using technology. Now, as that was the first mover, and many investors are comfortable with that model because they can see that exist elsewhere in the world, um, you're beginning to see consolidation and a slight slowdown. So what the data shows is actually in the total amount of investment, transport and logistics still remains uh, the industry. And that's because many of those companies have now grown um, to become bigger and require further investment. When you look at the total number of deals, fintech has overtaken. And what's interesting, though, is that we did a fintech report with ADGM a couple of months ago. Of the deals that took place, 50% are remittance and payments platforms. And if you take the logic of what I've just applied, that's exactly the same as a Kareem or a Souk or a Trucker. It's point-to-point -point delivery is just in this case, it's money. It's not AI, blockchain, crypto, complicated concepts. 
the financial services industry here and having been an ex-consultant and in banking is ripe for disruption. The challenge and why it usually comes a little bit later is because you have the central banks and the regulation that is somewhat complicated. And the MENA region means that you're doing that across 17 countries, different jurisdictions. And to get scale in the financial services space takes that little bit longer than potentially an offline infrastructure, which is mobility. It's very, it, it, it's when you look at it that way, it kind of it says what early stages we're at. Point in terms A of to tech. B. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's a, a four-word thing I will take away from yeah. today. Um, Point A to B. So I, I spoke to the chief executive of Kareem Mudassir Shaker last week, and he said one of the reasons why they agreed to sell to Uber for three point one billion, um, as much as it gave their investors a payday, um, it was because they realized they were really still at such the early stages of what they were trying to do. And they needed you know, to, to basically guarantee that they would get to where they wanted to go. Yep. And Uber would provide the funding and the expertise and the ability to do it without them having to keep going and raising money. And so it, we think of Kareem as having, I guess, that when I look from the outside, Kareem having achieved what it set out to do. When, when the founder says, actually, no, we're nowhere near. We're at like 1% to 2% yep. of where we need to be. I mean, that's a testament to the hunger of the founder, right? Um, there's always going to be the trollers that say, why did they sell out? It was too early. I mean, these guys hustled for several year, eight years, basically, to get them to where they are. And yet they acknowledge they're only still uh, at the early stages of their journey and, and that they're going to continue to grow. And that Uber acquisition, instead of fighting uh, and competing, it's let's, let's do this together and actually make this something special. And now they're on this path towards a super app and combining not just logistics, but bringing Bringing other elements that allow you to digitalize your experience and they're in a prime position to be able to do that. And I'm sure, and that's the acknowledgement from what you said, is that they're in a better position to be able to do that now without the burden of having to fundraise and continue to scale and grow, which when you are trying to give a payoff to your investor is basically the name of the game in the tech space, that they can probably do that from a very different position now than a year ago. And what were the takeaways for you from the Kareem story? For me, number one, and I've been having these conversations with many of the governments across the region, is that the reason that they were that successful was not because they were based out of one specific jurisdiction, it's because they were in so many of them. Their ability to have scaled into so many countries, to serve so many customers, put them in the position that they were able. And that was extremely key. The second thing is, um, there is this false impression that the uh, the young 21-year-old tech person is the person that makes the successful startups. You have two very well-versed McKinsey ex-consultants, Mudassar, who had done multiple startups beforehand, who for the first couple of years bootstrapped and, and really grew their company and had a first client through McKinsey that were able to build this team. And I've been very fortunate to speak to Magnus and Mudassar, but mostly Magnus through the Dubai Future Council that we're both on. And, and for them, it's really important to have a good team. And when you speak to them, their success is attributed to the team that they were able to grow. Yes, it helps that they were able to raise all of these funds. But to them, they're only as good as the team that they have around them. And I think one of the biggest challenges in the region is finding people that understand the startup mentality, being able to convince them to join your vision. I had a very long conversation with Magnus about how it's important to have values and a vision to get people to buy in because you're not necessarily doing it for the salary in the short term or the potential equity in the long term. It's really, are you making impact? And I think that was important. And the third one, 
is that it takes time. I mean, it takes them eight years to get to that unicorn. And let's be clear, they are the exception, not the norm. They're one of a very few group of companies that are in that position. And that this stuff doesn't happen overnight. And while they are amazing examples for us to be able to be inspired by, to see more of these, there's more work that needs to be done at the grassroots to be able to support budding entrepreneurs, um, build their ventures. Uh, you mentioned Magnus. That's Magnus Olson, uh, co-founder of Kareem. Um, Another point that uh, Mr. Shaker had made to me was that uh, the startup scene isn't what it was even a year ago, um, and they that Kareem now has to aggressively go after profitability, and and more broadly in 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 terms of what's happened in Silicon Valley, and you see the failure of WeWork, where even SoftBank, which had been sort of leading the way in terms of global tech startup investments, admits it got it wrong, then people start to think, well, wait a minute, maybe I need to slow down a little bit. And even their Vision 2 fund has not seen the take up as much as, as Vision 1 yep. had seen. So is there a sense of there is a little bit more caution more broadly in the startup scene across the region that you're seeing? I, I think that two things. One, I think it's a realization at a global level that people need to reevaluate the way that they look to build their businesses. Um, but the second thing is that is also part and symptom of an economy where there's a lot of cash and cash being deployed in companies and a historical track record of that type of growth. Um, it's a much scarcer resource here in the region and startups need to work for their funding and investors have not got as much of a high risk appetite as they do elsewhere. And I don't think that that phenomena necessarily is as acute or as strong here in the region as it is elsewhere in the world. But it doesn't mean that when you're beginning to look and you get to your series A, B and C uh, towards international investors to invest in your company, that they're not wiser to the fact that you need to be building profitable businesses in the long run to get acquired or invested in. So I think it's a double edged sword. But here in the region, yeah, the scarcity of uh, funding means that you do need to have justifiable business models to be able to receive that funding. Uh, Phil Bahoshi, Chief Executive of Magnet, thanks for being with us today. I hope you Thank come you back again. Much. My yeah, pleasure. My uh, pleasure. Kelsey, future editor, let me say bye to you as well. Good to be here. Thanks Thank for you. being with us. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. First, Abu Dhabi Bank, the UAE's largest lender by assets, reported a 4% jump in full-year profit due to higher operating income. Payments and foreign exchange holding company Finabler's share price tumbled after its majority owner, UAE-based Indian billionaire B.R. Shetty, pledged more than half of its stock as security to raise loans. And Ethiopia's reformist leader, Abiy Ahmed, is wooing private sector investors to fuel economic growth. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe or leave a review. Uh, all that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. And thank you all for listening. Do join us again next time. Hold up. 